The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Please turn in your Bibles to Mark 15. Today we'll begin in verse 1. Today we're talking about what it is to be a substitute. Substitute is one of those words that must be heard in context in order to know whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. It can be good news, for example, when you're in school and you hear there's going to be a substitute teacher and you have absolute confidence that they're not sending any homework home with you. You're rejoicing in your heart, celebrating, knowing that this is a good substitute. Or perhaps it could be bad news, like when your favorite player twists their ankle and the last guy on the bench who's never played a single minute of real game time actually subs in with nine seconds left down two points in the basketball game. The bad substitution. You know this is bad news. Deep sorrow. <laughs> My wife Ashley is the best cook that I know. She's phenomenal. Most of you have experienced the great grace that the Lord has given her to be incredible in the kitchen. She especially excels at baking delicious and very unhealthy desserts and uh so lately my wife has um she's been attempting to be more healthy in the way that we prepare foods and we're on a team on this i need to be more healthy she's fantastic but i need to i need to be more healthy so she's helping me by cooking food where she will substitute one food for another i guess this is a strange underground renaissance or some kind of culinary revolution where people are trying to sneak vegetables into their meals so sometimes I use oil instead of dressing on my salads, or I use ghee instead of butter, or I eat pancakes that are made of cauliflower instead of bisquick, because substitution. Substitution is, quite literally, the central doctrine of the Christian faith. Jesus in my place. It is the idea of an unfair but merciful trade where Jesus took all of the blame and all of my punishment and my sin so that I would be set free. Substitution. The theologians call this penal substitutionary atonement. And one of the best examples of substitution in the entire Bible is found right here in the text that I am about to read to you this morning. So please follow along in your own copy of the scriptures as I have the great joy of reading to you from God's word. Mark 15, verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now after the feast, now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. 
But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Let's pray. Our God and Father in heaven, this is a precious word about our precious Savior. God, I pray that as we see the person and work of Jesus Christ today, that we would not be able to see it and walk away unmoved, that you would, by your Spirit, change us. God, I pray for every heart that we would incline our ears to you, that we would reach out to you declaring we need you. And God, I pray that you would answer by the working of your spirit, by changing us, by opening our eyes to our, our own sin. Lord, areas of our lives that we might not even acknowledge are there or that we have forgotten. God, I pray that you would please, by your spirit, reveal to us how we can walk in the light as you are in the light. God, I pray for each person here today that doesn't know you. Lord, I pray that you would please open their heart to believe the gospel, for only you can do that miracle. In Christ's name we pray, amen. As usual, Mark, in his account of this event, is presenting it very rapidly and with minimal details. It's significantly shorter than any of the other three gospel accounts of Pilate's uh, conversation with Jesus. So there will be occasions here where I'm going to jump outside of Mark's gospel to draw in information from the others. But when that will take place, I'll put those verses up on the screen behind me so that you can see them. Um, But for the most part, I would like for you to stay here in Mark chapter 15 so you can follow along and let your eyes see and become familiar with these words. Last week, we heard about Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin where he was condemned by Caiaphas, the high priest. This week, we're going to focus our attention on the civic trial of Jesus, which occurred before Pilate. Now, our examination of this text this morning will function somewhat as a character study of the main figures that we see in these verses. So for those who enjoy taking notes, our outline this morning is really simple. Pilate and then Barabbas. First, let's consider what we know about Pilate. The history books have not been kind to this man. For example, the historian Philo defined Plato as, quote, a man of inflexible, stubborn, and cruel disposition. He was married to the granddaughter of Caesar, Caesar Augustus, that is, and he had been given one of the least desirable posts in all of the Roman Empire. Nobody wanted his job. Nobody wanted to be the prefect over Israel. This was a hotbed of trouble, and everyone who got sent there would usually find themselves mixed up in that very same trouble. The people who usually got this job were individuals that the emperor wanted to get away from him. Usually that was because they were either afraid that that person would kill them, which often happened in the backstabbing nature of the Roman uh, government, or... They hated them or disliked them or wanted to disregard them and make them suffer through this post so they would be put in this position of authority. So Pilate, he might have viewed this as a punishment. Or perhaps he viewed this, as many did, as an unfortunate but necessary stepping stone to climb the ladder in the Roman government to get where he wanted. He had high aspirations. He wanted power. 
And his hunger for power was often, often resulted in swift and violent responses against the Jews who stood against him or who disobeyed him. He had a particular disgust for the Jewish religion. For example, historians tell us that when Pilate ran out of funding for an aqueduct project that he was working on, he sent soldiers to go into the temple and to take money from the treasury so that he could pay for the aqueduct. And when some of the temple workers tried to stop him, he had the soldiers beat them and some of those people were killed. He was not a kind man to the Jews. Later, there was a tragic event that Jesus references in Luke chapter 13, verse 1, which says, There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. You can see that there was no fear of God before this man's eyes, nor did he care about the lives of the people he was supposed to rule over. It was violence like this that caused Pilate to be reprimanded regularly by his superiors. But the final straw was when Pilate sent soldiers to set up banners all around Jerusalem with the face of Caesar. Now, for us, that might not be a big deal. You see a banner with a face on it, no problem. But you have to understand that Caesar was worshipped as a god. And in Jerusalem, there was a law that you were not to put up any altar or statue or image of a false god. So when they were doing this, the Jewish leaders viewed this as setting up altars of worship to Caesar, which is what Pilate's motive was in the first place. So he sent them in to set up all of these banners and to set up these false gods. So the Jews who were offended, many of them, went to Pilate's home all the way up in Caesarea Philippi, and he demanded that they have them removed. Instead, Pilate told his soldiers to surround the Jews, and then he threatened them with death if they didn't return home silently and just deal with it. But the Jews that were there, they called his bluff, and they actually took their shirts, and they held out their necks and said, Go ahead, cut off our heads. We want nothing to do with this. We will not return. And Pilate knew if he did that, it would create such a riot that he would surely lose his post and possibly his life. So he backed down. The reason I tell you these things is not just to give you a lesson in history, but it's because this information is vital in understanding the power struggle between the Sanhedrin and Pilate that is taking place in our passage today. What is going on here? They know how to push his buttons. They know that his power is limited. They know that the crowds could potentially create a riot, and he is terrified that to do so would mean losing his job or his life or both. Look again at the first two verses of this chapter. It says this, And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. This is essentially like a prisoner transfer. As they gave him over, it's clear from the other gospel accounts that they told Pilate his crime was sedition and seeking to incite rebellion against Rome. In fact, in the book of Luke, it tells us that Jesus, they say to Pilate, Jesus has said, don't even pay taxes to Caesar, which is quite literally the exact opposite thing that Jesus had said in the temple courts not even a week earlier. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to, God's, to God what is God's. And Pilate, he asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. Now this, sometimes as a pastor, I don't know where to put the emphasis on a word in a sentence. 
I don't know where to put the emphasis on the word in this sentence. You have said so. Because it's an interesting sentence. It's one that is hard to translate from the Greek. And it's a very different way than Jesus answered the questioning that he had experienced earlier from the Sanhedrin. When Caiaphas asked him, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed? What did he say? He said, I am. And now when Pilate is asking if Jesus is a self-proclaimed sovereign over a small bit of land in the Mediterranean Sea, he says, you have said so. Now, I think the reason that Jesus responds this way is because what he is saying is, I am what you say I am, but I am not what you mean. In other words, when Caiaphas was questioning Jesus, Jesus and Caiaphas had the same definition of Messiah, at least on some level. They had the same definition of what it means to be the son of the blessed, the son of God. They knew what they were both talking about. Pilate is speaking out of ignorance. And when he says king of the Jews, he thinks the king of this land. But Jesus is saying, I am the king of the Jews, which means I am the messianic fulfillment of every promise of the Old Testament. I am the one who was to come. My kingdom has no boundaries. It has no borders. There is no limit to my jurisdiction. Everyone, including you, Pilate, are under my authority. And I have a kingdom unlike yours that is everlasting. He doesn't get it at all when he says, so you're the king of the Jews. He's thinking some minor guy who's going to reign for four or five years till somebody stabs him and kills him and takes his place. No, Jesus and Pilate have a different definition. So he says, you have said so. In other words, the words you are saying is they are correct, but your definition is not. Follow along now in verse three. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now please understand, because Jesus is the king, Pilate thinks that Jesus is on trial before him. But in reality, the opposite is true. Pilate is currently on trial before Christ. And Pilate is the one who here is going to show himself an imposter. Here what we see taking place is that there is an awe in Pilate. He is amazed at Jesus. He is amazed at him because this is a different kind of prisoner than anyone that has ever stood before him before. No one acts like this guy. And so he begins to have a sense that he is different. Jesus is different. And although Mark doesn't contain this information, we know from the other gospel accounts that this is when Jesus was sent to Pilate, or uh, to Herod. Pilate doesn't know what to do with him. It's like, I... I don't understand. So he tries to to wash his hands of this by sending it away and saying, Herod, you figure out what to do. So Jesus went to Herod. He stood there silently and never said a word. So Herod just sends him right back to Pilate. Therefore, Mark skips over that part. And when he comes back, Pilate knows now he is going to be the one that is responsible for determining the fate of Jesus. And he's uncomfortable with his position because he realizes and recognizes this is an innocent man. So he devised a plan. He developed a scheme to get out of any responsibility of punishing or crucifying or executing this innocent person. So it was customary at that time for Pilate to release one prisoner during the Passover feast. We see that the Roman people did this occasionally when they had conquered a region. That's one way that they would make nice with the people that they had conquered. They say, okay, well, we've, we've arrested a lot of you. Pick one and you can be set free. So Pilate had instituted this procedure. So in verse 8 we read, And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. 
And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. See, Pilate has an idea. The chief priests hate Jesus. The religious rulers hate Jesus. But I know the crowds don't hate Jesus. I know that they have cheered him when he was in the temple and when he was questioned. Surely, as he is in the temple courts, this word is getting out to Pilate. He knows that they had sung alongside of Jesus. Hosanna, blessed is the, is the son of David who comes in the name of the Lord as he is going into Jerusalem a week earlier. He knows these things. He knows that Jesus has been popular. So he thinks, well, the chief priests are just envious. I'll just, I'll just have the crowd release him. It's my back door here. I don't have to say no. They can say no for me. So he passes along all of his responsibility to the crowd. As verse 10 explains, Pilate has seen through all of the accusations. He knows that there is no validity in them. Yet instead of doing what he was supposed to do as a judge and releasing an innocent man, he decides to hand over his responsibility to others. Verse 11, but the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him released, to release for them Barabbas instead. This word instead, substitution. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. One scholar once said, this is the most chilling sentence in the entire Bible. Crucify him. The Jews hated crucifixion. It was a torture that the Romans had oppressed the people with by crucifying those who were criminals or arrested as enemies of the state. And they hated the notion of crucifixion. It was considered a great evil to have someone crucified. Yet what they hear coming from their own mouths is crucify him. An innocent man. Crucify him. This demand was absolutely shocking. The crowds were demanding that Jesus be put to death by the cruelest form of execution ever known to man. And Pilate knows this man is innocent and he doesn't want to do it. You can sense the reluctance in, in his voice, in his heart, when he says in verse 14, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. Notice this. When he says, just give me a reason. Just give me a reason. What has he done? They say nothing. All they say is crucify him. There is no accusation because he is innocent and pure and perfect. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, verse 15, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Last week, we talked a long time about justice. So although this passage is rich with things to say about injustice and the unjust judge that Pilate was, I would like for us to consider instead these verses in another way. John eighteen thirty eight tells us that Pilate told the crowd, I find no guilt in him. Yet Pilate still handed him over to be crucified. It's important that we should see that this is nonsensical. This is bizarre. This is wrong. Anyone with a moral compass looks at this and says, what is wrong with this situation? Well, who, who does this guy think he is? But if you consider what the gospel is, then you'll see that this kind of thing happens all the time. When we evangelize, when we tell others about the gospel of Jesus Christ, what we are doing is we, is we are setting Jesus before them. And we are telling them to judge for yourself who is this man. Is this man the son of God? Is this man your authority? Is this man your king? We give them the information and they immediately begin to put Jesus on trial. Some people are, 
like what Romans 1.30 calls God-haters. You've probably encountered some of those people. These are people who become filled with rage as soon as you start to tell them that you're a Christian. These are the people that threaten to call the Freedom From Religious Foundation because you hand them a pamphlet about your church. These people hate God, and even the notion that you would speak about God to them, they get bitter and frustrated and turn bright red in the face. These people are like the chief priests. They're the ones who are out and out hateful against God. But in my opinion, in my experience, these people are a minority in the sense that what I found to be the case is people are often more like Pilate. They have a passing fascination with Jesus. They might even see some value or validity in the teachings of Jesus. They, they see that he's an innocent person. They don't have a lot of bad things to say about Jesus. They might even be amazed at some of the things that Jesus did. But when the rubber meets the road, they're not willing to bow the knee to Jesus because they have an agenda. As one scholar put it, amazement is not the same thing as faith. Pilate was seeking power and personal advancement. But where did that get him? He didn't want to protect the innocent man. He did not want to acknowledge who Jesus was because his goal was to climb the ladder. But what did that get him? We know that when Caligula became emperor, he fired Pilate because of his continued brutality. There are many things that he kept doing that offended the people as he kept killing them for minor problems. The historian Eusebius tells us that in shame, Pilate killed himself. Everything he had chased was pulled out from under him in an instant. His whole life destroyed in a moment, and his world collapsed. And perhaps you're here as an unbeliever this morning. And if that's the case, first of all, I'm really glad that you're here, and thank you for being here. It's likely, though, being that you're in a church service, that you have some knowledge of God. You have an awareness of Jesus. And perhaps you're even in awe on some level of who he is. Maybe you think he was a good teacher. Maybe you think he was a moral revolutionary. Which, by the way, both things are true. Possibly you consider Jesus to be God, but you don't really want to give up your life to him because you know that it's going to require that you give up things that you enjoy. Because you think that you are going to, by going to Christ, it's going to get in the way of what you want and your personal goals. Please understand, Jesus is worth losing everything. He is worth losing everything on earth. He is the treasure of the universe. So perhaps you will achieve every goal. Maybe you will be very different than Pilate. You won't lose your job. You won't kill yourself. Instead, you will get everything in your life that you ever run after and seek and desire. But guess what? Someday you're going to die. Then whose will these things be? Someday, all of the things that you were striving for, your great-grandchildren won't remember them. They will know less about you than you know about your great-grandparents. Most of us are going to outlive our own reputations. So let me ask you, is it worth it? It's not. Pilate stood before the maker of the universe, and he washed his hand of the whole situation, but that would not be the last time that he would stand before the maker of the universe. Pilate stood before Jesus in the judgment, and unless our historical sources are absolutely wrong, and he actually did trust Christ before his death, which I don't believe is the case, then he is forever under the wrath of God. And if you're here and you don't know Jesus in a saving way, that's you too. So I want to plead with you today. Look at this man, Jesus. As I am speaking about him, you are setting him on trial in your heart. And you will either bow the knee to him or you will stand and say, no, I would rather serve and worship and honor myself. That is your choice this morning. And I am calling out to you, if you don't know Jesus Christ, do not sacrifice the, the truth of the gospel for lesser things.
Let's continue on now by considering and taking a closer look at Barabbas. Mark describes this man as a rebel, as a murderer, as an insurrectionist. He was a leader among the zealots. He was a violent political activist. He hated the Romans, and he had been involved in an uprising. We don't exactly know historically what it was. There were a lot of these little uprisings that took place. Mark just calls it the uprising. So we know that he was involved in some kind of violent militaristic act. We would call this man in our modern world a terrorist. And so he had been caught. He had been imprisoned, and now he was scheduled for execution. Barabbas' name is also interesting for us here because it just means Bar, son of Abbas, the father, the son of the father. This man is a counterfeit son of the father standing across from the true son of the father. But that wasn't his first name. Barabbas is like a descriptor. They didn't have last names in the Old Testament period in the time of Christ. They didn't use all names like that, they would get a descriptor. Like the one, like Joseph Joseph of Arimathea. Somebody from Arimathea. Or you were called by the name of your father. So, that's why Jesus calls Peter, Peter Barjono, as they're walking on the road to Caesarea Philippi. Likewise, in some of the early manuscripts of Matthew 27, 16, and 17, it refers to Barabbas as Jesus Barabbas. Jesus was a very common name, in those days, it was a name very similar to like John or James or Robert or Mary today. But the crowds were told to choose between two people. Jesus, the Son of God, and Jesus, the Son of the Father, who was a, an imposter. Consider the fact that these two people could not be more different. This man, Barabbas, is like the bizarro version of Jesus. He was, Jesus was gentle. Barabbas was violent. Jesus was showing power by restraint, and Barabbas sought power by force. Jesus was gaining followers by changing their hearts and filling them with love, and Barabbas gained a following by seeking to fill his followers with hate and animosity for the Romans. What's so shocking and, to me, sickeningly ironic about this whole thing is that this guy is exactly what Israel keeps saying they want in a Messiah. Not just during this moment, But remember, as I've been preaching through the book of Mark, how many times have I said the people of Israel were searching for a ruler who would come in and fight? He would come in and he would conquer the Romans. He would be filled with a zeal for war. This is the guy they wanted. This is the kind of Messiah they were looking for. And they don't want anything to do with the kind of Messiah that Jesus has shown himself to be. So Pilate chose Barabbas because he expected that any sane human being, even ones who were excited about the notion of opposing the, the Romans, they thought any sane human being would want somebody better than Barabbas. This man is disgusting. This man is evil. So Pilate put it to a vote. And the democratic response was seemingly unanimous. Crucify Jesus and give us Barabbas. Now that morning when Barabbas woke up, he expected that he was going to be marched up a hill and executed. That was his full expectation. This was his last day on earth. But please understand, when I say these things, there was always intended to be three crosses on the hill that day. A criminal on the right, a criminal on the left, and Barabbas at the center. But when the guards came to get Barabbas, they didn't make him carry a cross. When they came to open his cell, instead of tying his hands, they released him and told him, you're free to go. 
all of the charges against you have been dropped. Everything that you have ever done to break the law has now been erased. Get out of here. Now, I wonder if he looked over the walls of the city that day and he saw his two friends being executed. If he heard the cries of their agony and sorrow. And then I wonder if tears filled his eyes as he realized that that center cross, his cross, was occupied by a man who was nailed there in his place. Substitution. But this is only a physical picture of substitution. Barabbas was spared from experiencing the penalty of sin because someone else took his place on the cross. He didn't die physically that day because somebody else took his place. But we are supposed to look at this man and we are supposed to see ourselves in it. Yesterday at our men's breakfast, Scott Zink said something very profound. He said, we always tend to see ourselves as better than we are. And he's absolutely right. We have an unrealistic view of our own righteousness. We think that we are great. We look at everyone else and we can see all all of a sudden, immediately, everything wrong with them. But when we look in the mirror, we seem to think highly of ourselves. Please consider that the Bible never, not even once, refers to you as a good person. For some reason, we are naturally always inclined to think that we are. As, as you evangelize, as you share your faith, you will always hear people say to you, I'm a pretty good person. That's not even a biblical category. It's not there. Why do people always say that? And you know what? Even if you haven't, that's where your mind goes. I'm a pretty good person because your natural proclivity is to look at others and compare yourself to them and ignore completely the holy God who stands over you in judgment. Barabbas was a murderer. He was a killer. But according to 1 John chapter 3:15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Have you ever had hatred in your heart? For another person. You might say, well, I'm no insurrectionist. But listen to me. Every time that you've ever broken the law of our country, if it's not in order to honor God by ignoring their commands, if you are just choosing to break their rule, then you are, de- you are defying God by defying the rulers that he set over you. But let's get down to an even more basic level. Let's say you say, well, look, I'm a good guy. I don't break the laws. I, I can't even think. I don't even break the speed limit. I wear a seatbelt every time. Like, I don't break the laws. Well, guess what? God has set a lot of different kinds of authority over you in your life and none more basic and fundamental than your parents. The Bible is very serious about the relationship of you with your parents. And obviously I'm not speaking in children's church this morning. I'm speaking to people who've grown up. This stuff happened a long time ago, but I can tell you every one of you here is just like me and just like my kids and just like your kids. You're a sinner who disobeyed and who did things that they told you not to do. And they caught you sometimes. Most of the time they probably didn't. You got away with a lot of things from them, but God saw every one of those things. Every last one of your sins against them was a form of insurrection against the one who set them up as your authority. You were not just offending your parents. You were offending God. That is why those who are disobedient to parents makes the list of people who are not saved in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Those people who are self-condemned. And at the root of every sin, at the very basic level of sin, is pride. And at its core is the notion that you are a good person. And more than that, you perceive yourself to be God. And everything else, and everyone else, should serve you. Pride has a billion expressions. We're impatient because we think people and things should work on our schedules because we deserve it. We covet and we're filled with envy because we think that we deserve something more than somebody else. We lust because we think that we should have the right to gratify our flesh however and whenever we want. We are filled with greed and we become materialistic because we think that we deserve to have a kingdom for ourselves. I could go on and on and on, but please understand, 
Everything I just mentioned is all stuff that just happens in your mind. I'm not even talking yet about stuff that you do with your body or with your mouth. As we express our sins outwardly, we see constant forms of pride and sin. Yesterday, Gene did an awesome job leading us in the men's breakfast as we studied the Bible. We discussed how James teaches that the tongue is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. And one of the greatest gifts that God has ever given us is our tongue. The ability to speak and communicate and show love and affection for others and edify others and to praise the Lord with our tongue. Yet with it, although we are supposed to do that, we use it instead to sin and to sin and to sin. Let me just give you a few of them. There are many that don't make the list. With it, we take the name of the Lord in vain. Lying, gossiping, slandering, backbiting, spreading rumors, deceit, extortion, railings, slander, defrauding, breaking promises, craftiness, hypocrisy, dishonesty, whispers, idle words, withholding the truth, double-tongued, bragging, boasting, flattery, exaggerating the truth, whining, speaking evil of others, grumbling. Now, these are all biblical terms that are used. I'm not making these up. The Bible calls all of these sins, and this little tiny muscle that you have in your mouth has been turned by the devil and by your heart and by the nature of sin that dwells within you into a weapon of mass destruction. A heroin addict becomes a slave to their drug. In a similar way, the Bible tells you in a much more permanent and unbreakable way that you and I are naturally born as a prisoner, as a captive, as a slave to sin. And each time we serve our sin master, what we are doing is worshiping on the altar of someone or something other than God, usually our own. Consider how the late R.C. Sproul explained this in his masterpiece book, The Holiness of God, which, by the way, I believe is still one more copy that you can pick up for free back there on the back table if anyone's interested. He says this, Sin is cosmic treason. Sin is treason against a perfectly pure sovereign. It is an act of supreme ingratitude toward the one to whom we owe everything, to the one who has given us life itself. Have you ever considered the deeper implications of the slightest sin of the most minute peccadillo? What are we saying to our creator when we disobey him at the slightest point? We are saying no to the righteousness of God. And we are saying, God, your law is not good. My judgment is better than yours. Your authority does not apply to me. I am above and beyond your jurisdiction. I have the right to do whatever I want to do, not what you command me to do. But here's the kicker. Like you might see this as a list of things that are bad that the Bible says about you. Please understand, just one of those sins committed even at any time is worthy of judgment. It makes you completely guilty. There is no statute of limitations in the courtroom of God. James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Ephesians 2.3 describes us this way, We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Ultimately, the only way that we could ever think of ourselves as a good person is if we are completely, absolutely avoiding and ignoring the holiness of God. He is absolutely pure, he is perfectly righteous, and holy and good. And when we intentionally set aside his holiness, then we can move on to anything we want. If his law is not law, then we can set the standard however we like. But when we gaze upon the perfect holiness of our God, 
our only appropriate response is to fall down on our face and to say, Lord, I am unworthy. I am guilty. I have no business being here in your presence. So you and I, we're just like Barabbas. And this is terrible news. This is terrible news because it means that a holy and righteous judge, a just judge, not like Pilate, should say to us, you are condemned. And you are going to experience my judgment forever. But the good news of the gospel is substitution. Jesus in my place. Jesus stood silently here before his accusers. They were casting accusation after accusation at him. And Pilate was amazed because Jesus stood there silently. Lie after lie after lie was told about him. Yet he says not a word of self-defense. Even though... If somebody was digging up dirt on you or me, they would find it. And as they are trying to dig up dirt on Jesus, he just takes it. Every lie, he absorbs it. So what do we take away from a text like this? Let me leave you with three things this morning. First of all, don't forget your depravity. This shouldn't be hard because there is evidence everywhere you look. It amasses around you constantly. But I want to encourage you to recognize it. See it for what it is. Call it for what it is. Because it can be so easy for us to rely on the grace of God and say, I have been saved by grace through faith. Therefore, I live however I feel like living. But should we go go on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means. See your sin. Recognize that it's there and fight it. But also let it be a reminder to you that you're not going to heaven because you're worthy but because of the one who is worthy, who has died in your place. He purchased your entrance by substituting himself in your place. We should have a certain level of brokenness over our sin. People say, I'm struggling with sin. Most of the time, that's a lie. You're just failing. You're not even battling. You're not trying at all. We should have a certain level of brokenness when we realize what we've done and that it has offended God. We should view our sin as sickening, As what it is, a stealer of our joy, a robber of our assurance and our closeness with Christ. We should be like David who was brokenhearted after he was confronted with his sin with Bathsheba. Like he says in Psalm 51.3, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Is that true of us? Or do we just forget about it and go on like it's not a big deal? We should be just like Paul in Romans 7.24-25 who says, O wretched man that I am. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? When was the last time you felt over your sin? Oh, wretched man that I am. Oh, wretched woman that I am, who will deliver me? But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. He who has been forgiven much loves much. How much have you been forgiven of? Do you know? Do you recognize your sin? The more you recognize and acknowledge and fight and repent of your sin, the more that you are going to see just how gracious God has been toward you. Here's the second thing I want to leave you with today. Rejoice in righteousness. Now Barabbas, he was set free. He was released as a prisoner. But he was never declared to be good. He was never declared to be a righteous guy. Now you have been not only set free from sin and its bondage, but you have also been declared righteous. The gospel is substitution. He took my sin and gave me his perfect record. Second Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him who 
to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It is an unfair but perfect substitution. So even as you are setting your mind upon your own depravity, recognizing your own sin, set your heart upon this truth. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There used to be. But there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have been set free not only from what we have done, but we have been given his righteousness. And now we stand before the Lord and say, I'm not worthy of going into heaven on my record, but I bear the perfect record of Christ who fulfilled all righteousness. Here's a third thing I want to leave you with this morning. It's very broad. This is something that I preach every Sunday in one form or fashion. So this is perhaps the most general of applications that I will ever give. But it's simply this. Live like you have been saved. Barabbas might not have changed his life. We don't know. We don't know what he did the day after the crucifixion. We don't know if he continued on in his murder and insurrection. We don't know. But you and I are called to a newness of life. We have not been just saved. We have been given a new heart. One that is able to honor God and obey him freely. We have been given the ability to experience true joy. The fullness of joy. And we have been given the ability to express genuine Love. We've been given the Holy Spirit who begins to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit in our hearts. And we are no longer living for ourselves so we can be selflessly devoted to others. We have been saved so that we can delight in our Savior and sing to Him without, without any kind of hesitation or limitation. So I want to remind you, live like you have been saved. Earlier today, as we were preparing for the Lord's Supper, Steve said, there are many weeks when I get to Sunday and remember, oh yes, God is real. And I'm responsible to him. And I need to live life the way that he has declared that I should live life. It's easy for us to wake up on a Monday morning and have forgotten that completely. In fact, I was reading just a few months ago this statistic that said by by Tuesday morning, the average churchgoer has forgotten every word of the sermon preached on a Sunday. I recognize my limitations, You're not going to remember the words that I say, but remember Christ. Remember Christ tomorrow morning when you wake up. Thursday, when you haven't been in church for a few days. Remember Christ. I encourage you to be part of the community groups and doers groups and all sorts of whatever we ever do in terms of being in fellowship together for the rest of the time we are with one another in the church. But please remember, apart from that even, every moment of your life, set Christ before your eyes and live for him. For we know that what we've been saved from And we know what we've been saved to. So how can we help but be changed? Let's pray. God, I pray that for every word of this text, you would impact our heart. Lord, I pray that there is not one thing that you desire for us to learn that we will not. I pray that each person here will be convicted in a unique way to become more like Jesus. God, I pray that this would not be quickly forgotten, that we would be reminded daily of the great and surpassing worth of your Son. And that we might see him on the cross recognizing that it should be me hanging there. And God, I pray that we would recognize each and every day, Jesus has died for me. Lord, I pray for anyone here that does not know you, who cannot say that. Please, Lord, open their eyes to the gospel. Let this be their day of salvation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.